You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Lyle Bolinqua. I will be your host for the Heritage Voices Podcast. And of course, I want to give a big thank you to each and every one of you who made the effort to show up today. Uh, you're a large part of that other voice out there in terms of, you know, the organizations can do their part, but it takes the efforts of you all to come and participate and show that there is the support for this monument and for the organizations that are doing a lot of the work to help preserve and protect what really are the tangible cultural landscapes of the indigenous people. So thank you all for showing up and staying till the very end of the day to help us uh, do this podcast. Um, again, we are trying to do a live recording here. Uh, if you want to find the Heritage Voices podcast, you can go to arcpodnet.com forward slash Heritage Voices. And like Josh mentioned, you can just type that uh, in Google and you can find our podcast. And there's multiple uh, episodes about indigenous issues, not just relating to archaeology, but uh, museum studies, um, legal issues, social identity issues. And so we really try and reach a wide audience in terms of the people we have on the podcast. Um, and we found that it's really uh, a great sharing and learning tool, not just for folks such as yourselves, but for within tribal communities. It, it really helps us spread um, information and knowledge and experience that different tribes accumulate through their respective works. And so through this podcast, we're able to share that with other tribal communities and help them develop programs that they may be looking to do down, the, down into the future. Um, before we get into introductions, really, I was supposed to only host uh, and kind of intro the, the three folks that were originally scheduled on this panel because we're missing one extra voice. Uh, I'll fill that in right now. And I want to try and set the somewhat of a theme for my other uh, two panelists here, and we'll get to their introductions. I want them to speak on behalf of themselves. But my background is, of course, I'm from Hopi. i um, been an archaeologist for over 20 years here in the Southwest, uh, working to help record, document, preserve, protect uh, ancestral Hopi landscapes that are found across, you know, in the Southwest. A really important part of our work is the collaboration we do with the scientific community. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to all the archaeologists past, present, and hopefully future that are working to conduct respectful, collaborative works with indigenous communities. It's very important that we continue to have that two-way discussion so that the indigenous voice is always present. It's one thing to say that these are ancestral landscapes, but it's a whole other thing to be able to record those perspectives um, and have them available to a wider audience because that provides us that opportunity to provide uh, a very holistic perspective of what's going on out here. A large part of that collaboration, you know, throughout the history has been somewhat kind of confrontational. Um, archaeologists, scientists, and indigenous communities do not always see eye to eye, of course. That's okay. That's to be expected, and that's never going to change. There's always going to be some disagreement on, on that work as we move into the future. But it's important that we recognize those efforts uh, between the science and the indigenous communities. Because for the indigenous communities, and this is something that I talk about a lot with from the folks at Hopi, is that 
we talk a lot about tribal sovereignty. <clears throat> what does that mean to us in this modern day age? We can say we're Hopi or Navajo or Ute or Zuni or White Mountain Apache and, and down the line. We may understand from a cultural standpoint what that means, but proving that and showing that to the outside world takes that active voice from the individuals that are here on the panel, but also from within those communities out there that are really looking at this uh, issue like monument, uh, like the Bears Ears Monument as a tribal sovereignty issue. Uh, this is about retaining control over our histories. This is about self-identity. Who I am as a Hopi person is out there on the landscape. In order for me to have that history for future generations, we have to work together to help preserve and protect those uh, resources out there. What I'd hopefully like to touch on with the panelists here today is, is how does their respective efforts um, relate to the definition of tribal sovereignty? How are we working to preserve uh, our own cultural identities through uh, the research that they're involved in, through various uh, activism that they have ongoing? We see this across the United States. Uh, some of you are aware of Standing Rock. Some of you are aware of Oak Flats. Some of you are aware of Snowball. These are all large-scale environmental issues in which our cultural identity is the core of what we're trying to get across in terms of why we protect these landscapes. Our identity is inextricably tied to those landscapes out there. And so it's really important for us to be able to voice our cultural perspectives to larger audiences so that you all can get a greater understanding that what does that term sacred mean? There's really a larger definition behind that term, and it takes multiple voices for us to be able to show you that sacredness or why these places are culturally important have different perspectives. Not any one particular perspective is placed higher than the other. It's a collective voice that we all have that is represented here. So I'll go ahead and uh, turn the mic over. Uh, we'll start with Ed Kabodi here, and I'll let them introduce themselves and go down the line. Thank you. Mbia gini navikema ingo hoping ango mu kwari arike ato akapo wenge arisungo pavi wari mbia gini kuidovi e sidovi e navimato in navikema ing ko in meme in mbia gini. My name is uh, Ed Kabodi and I'm from the Hopi village of Sungo Pave. On my father's side and on my mother's side, I'm from the Tewa village of Kapo Wenge, aka Santa Clara Pueblo. Um, I'm an artist and a musician and. Um, uh, I'll be playing for you guys tonight. I guess that's a good good time for commercial. <laughs> but um, so I mean, just to just to explain a little bit about what I do in my art and in my music, um, I feel that my mission as an artist is to express the virtues and the values of my people. Sometimes even our vices, you know, to communicate to a greater culture, you know, what what is in our heart. A lot of times um, we're in very conflicting paradigms and it's hard to get into one another's minds just because we're coming from a very different place. Uh, in my music, the band that you're going to hear tonight, we call ourselves the Yodis, uh, which is short for Coyotes because we feel like we're howling for the people and the lands of the Colorado Plateau. The Colorado Plateau being, um, you know, a sacred landscape to not only my people, but many uh, indigenous tribes of this area. And, um, you know, when we think of the Colorado Plateau, we're thinking of a land of sacredness, a land of beauty, a land um, that many people experience 
the beauty with us in uh, the national monuments and so forth, and yet it's a land that's very highly exploited. I like to point out there's 500 standing rocks in these hemispheres. You know, uh, there's 500 open pit uranium mines on the Navajo Nation. You know, the uh, only existing uranium mine in Arizona, you know, being the Canyon Mine, you know, and the proposed haul route, the only existing mill, you know, right next to the, the Ute Mountain Ute people just a few miles from here, you know, and um, this is something that all of us, I think, should be crying out for. So, uh, like Lyle, I'm going to just um, say, Kokwai, thank you to all of you to, uh, for making the effort to um, enrich yourself, educate yourself. And uh, you know, share in our struggle together for Mother Earth. Thank you. Thank you for coming out today. My name is Regina Lopez Whiteskunk. I am a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. I'm a former elected official for my tribe, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, headquartered in Toyot, Colorado. I'm also the former co-chair of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. I look back in this very room here, and I have such memories of fighting hard for a designation. At the public hearing here with Sally Jewell, we had such a profound voice. If I recall correctly, we had more voices saying, the same thing. We want a monument. We want protection. We want something for the next seven generations. We had very few who stood up and spoke in opposition to this. We even had some pretty ridiculous statements that came out of those who opposed the monument, if you all recall. But the big lesson that I learned out of the whole process is that each and every one of us has to sit down and open our minds and our hearts to listen to both sides of the, the issue. For many of us, the human side of us just wants to hear what we believe in. We only want to carry that because that's the ego in us. But the human side of it is you have to be considerate of your neighbor point that you want to be able to to learn from them and understand the difference because understanding the differences is going to make you a richer person so although in this very moment where we find ourselves kind of turned around again I think everything's almost gone full circle here where we had no monument we were seeking a monument we had the monument now we have two small little remnants of the monument Two little units, I think everybody called that earlier. And now we're, we're still back in that same position that we were in this very room. Almost in a defensive position. We've come full circle. And now we're back to what many of us as Native Americans have known for many, many generations. We're down to being stripped to very little. But through this process, not only did we experience this, but everybody that owns the public lands experienced this. This is how our people had gone through being stripped down to very little. And I say thank you for standing strong with us. 
and I say thank you now for continuing to stand with us. But the most important thing that you can do today and tomorrow is keep telling your stories, keep singing your songs, keep writing to your congressmen, your senators, even if it isn't your own senator and congressman and they're of another state. You find yourself in strange positions where you might be in the same airplane as somebody that may be a representative from another state. Feel free to share what the public lands means to you to them. Although you didn't elect them, they still in the end of the day will cast a yes or no vote on the one thing that will affect you and how much it means to you. I think it was said very well earlier. You won't protect something that you don't love. <clears throat> and express that. My advocacy today has taken many different turns, just as a river does. On the day that I was elected into office for my tribe, I seen a straight line from point A to point B. Little did I know that it was going to have the many curves, turbulences, and different changes in cutting through the lands that I thought it would. I didn't think it was going to land me here. I'm no longer an official, but you know what? I have the one thing my grandmother said that I had. She said, you have a voice. Use it. So I continued to write. I continued to speak. And now I find myself mentoring young people and other groups. Something that's very close to us right now that is coming up here very shortly in a couple of weeks is we're doing a prayer run. A run that many of us are running from our villages, our communities, into the Bears Ears region. Why are we doing this? In prayer, in unity, in solidarity, or retracing the tracks of our ancient ones, generations before us? Because everybody has a migration, everybody had a time that they came and went from this region. And at this point in time, we feel like we need to do this. It's that important. It's the action. It's not a demonstration. It's not an occupation. It's an action. It's a prayer. It's a prayer we're going to live. And it's a prayer we're giving up for Mother Earth. Activism can come in many different directions. I didn't know which way mine was going to take me. But apparently it's gotten me to many different places and many different audiences. And I thank each and every one of you for supporting me along the way. Each one of you have been in my prayers. And I appreciate that. Thank you. is supported by our listeners. 
You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. So Lyle had mentioned, you know, at, at the beginning, you know, to relate these ideas to tribal sovereignty. Um, I guess I want to just say that I feel like personally, um, a lot of times I'm put into the camp of an activist and it's not so much that I um, always feel like that's where I belong, you know. I feel like I'm an artist and I'm a musician. I'm, an ex- I'm expressing um, what's going on around me and the things that I interact with as I'm journeying through this world. Um, a lot of times when these things uh, are said or I'm experiencing these things, I'm looking it through the, my own cultural glasses, you know, the way that I look at the world. And as an artist, a lot of times I think maybe we live a little bit outside the box, you know. Maybe I don't get to places the conventional way that most people do, you know. Uh, maybe I don't uh, live in the same type of schedule that a lot of people do. And to me, it's a luxury, luxury that I enjoy to live in a little bit different of a paradigm. I feel like I'm a little bit of a traditional romantic, you know, because when I look at the way the world is today, I look at governments that were imposed upon us as native people. Um, my great-grandfather, Lola Matyama, was arrested in 1906 and was imprisoned for refusing to send my grandfather to school. And then my grandfather was sent to the Santa Fe Indian School he ran away till he was 15, and then he was sent there. My father was sent uh, to the state of Kansas, to Lawrence, Kansas, for school. And I was sent to the same boarding school as my grandfather. I like to point out that this is very recent history. And it's in the midst of this history, it's in the midst of the government educating our people to the degree that they want to which back then it was an eighth grade education, which according to my grandfather was more the equivalent of a second grade education because he said their, their speech was not fluent. You know, they couldn't uh, speak um, full sentences and so forth. And it's in the midst of that that we're required to create a tribal government that mirrors the American government. And it seems to be the unspoken policy that the reason for those governments was so that grabs could be made on our lands and our resources. In the case of Hopi, um, one of the very first lawyers that was hired or appointed for us was from here in Utah, uh, John Boyden from Salt Lake City. And of course, at his death, it was found out that he was also on the payroll of Peabody Coal Company when he was representing Hopi, you know. Now what that means for us, that means that we were paid 3.3% of the market value of coal. What that means for us is we were paid $1.67 for every 364,000 gallons of water. What that means for us that 
During this period of the largest strip mining operation in the entire world, the Black Mesa mine, you know, water was pulled from an underground aquifer, an aquifer that would have sustained our people for 300 years, and it's gone, and it'll never come back. I always say, tell to people, yeah, we're sovereign nations. We're sovereign nations unless you're talking about uranium, water, oil, or coal, then we're no longer sovereign nations. You see, then you find out what we really are. You know, that what took place at Standing Rock is a perfect example. What's taking place here at Bears Ears is a perfect example. And in my mind, it doesn't matter who's in office, whether it's a Republican or whether it's a Democrat, because our people are still experiencing the same things. We still have arsenic contamination in our water. We still have uranium contamination in our water. And some, for some people, you know, um, they don't have those resources at all, you know. So going back to my idea about being a romantic traditionalist, the way I look at the world probably is, to be honest with you, not with a lot of hope. I feel that my forefathers, their understanding was right, you know. In their wisdom, they were led to a place called Hopi, you know, which to us is the center of the universe. Not to a place of great lakes and great waters, a place where our lives would be easy, where our children would inherit great material wealth. No, they went to a place where their children would experience suffering. And the heritage that they received would be a heritage of suffering cold and heat and thirst and growing things by faith, depending upon the water cycle, depending upon our answers uh, the answers to our prayers for rain to nourish our crops. Because we'd already learned that the human race is bent on self-destruction. You know, this is what our own teachings already tell us. This is what our own prophecies tell us. That we're already bent on destruction and the best thing that we can do is seek to live consciously as individuals and teach our children, give our children a spiritual her heritage because that's the only thing that endures. You know, so anyway, that's my feelings about, you know, sovereignty, this issue called sovereignty. Okay, bear with us, folks, real quick. We're going to have uh, one more addition to our panel. I want to give him a chance to introduce himself um, and have him opportunity to speak. Angelo, Angelo Baca, good to meet you. Yeah, the Angelo Baca, Yenishia, Lashit Nishlink, he's Anibashi's chin, Torichini Dashichi, Nakaidene Edashanala. My name's Angelo Baca, I'm Navajo and Hopi, I'm from San Juan, I grew up here. Um, I have relatives all up and down from Utah border out there by Monument Valley, which I just came from, so um, a little bit, everything's a little bit slower than I, um, than I anticipated, did the uh, Monument Valley ultra race thing this morning, so <laughs> kind of limping along, and I'm, I'm behind schedule, so I apologize for being late, kind of kind of overdid it, um, and uh, you know, I'm really grateful to be here on this panel with my esteemed colleagues, and these are very knowledgeable, wonderful people. And um, 
you know, part of my responsibilities as a cultural resources coordinator for Utah Denebikea are to really bridge many different kinds of groups and organizations and people who are talented, who are knowledgeable, who are well-versed in what they do. And I have tremendous respect, especially for our Native leaders, our uh, knowledge keepers, our academics, intellectuals, our traditional knowledge holders. And bringing them all together, Bears Ears has afforded us an opportunity to do that in a way that we've never had a chance to do before. So I always say, especially for my field, you know, I'm studying anthropology um, at NYU in the PhD program, that uh, this is an opportunity that we have never had before, which is a unique experience in which when I work with the uh, Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, and we, in particular, like if we talk about a thing or like an object or a place out here in Bears Ears, you have to imagine it almost like, okay, so you have a thing, right? Like maybe this, this object in front of me. And you see it from your side, and I see it from my side. And then we get like two different kind of, you know, a Western and indigenous viewpoint on what this thing might be. Now, imagine that with the five tribes, right? And then you all have like these five perspectives on this one thing, and your mind is just totally blown. You're like, whoa, I did not even see that, and now I can't unsee it. You know, so all those perspectives of all the different cultural heritage viewpoints are all coming together in a time right now that we've never had ever before in history. And it's incredible just to see all the collective knowledge that goes into that and all the beautiful, wonderful stories, the history, the culture, the language. So that kind of thing is unique and it's something that we've never had before. And I, I've been very uh, privileged to be a part of that process and see that for myself. So um, I'm, I'm just really kind of uh, blown away to be here, and I'm really super uh, excited to participate in this. I showed the film last night about Bears Ears, and um, you know it was uh, warmly recepted. And I'm really grateful that people were very open to that invitation to contribute and participate in this wonderful new thing that we're creating, which is really the old thing, right? Because <laughs> we we're, were talking about the only way to get to, to the future is to go back to the past. And that's what all human beings do everywhere, all over the world. In order for us to know who we are, we always go back. And so this is a good moment and for us to reevaluate ourselves, where we come from, who we are, who our people are, who our ancestors are. And uh, it's just a real huge honor to be doing this work. And um, I'm really glad that Angelo popped in when he did. Uh, it's kind of almost fitting um, to chime in exactly right in the same region that um, Ed did. And it brings me to the point of, of process. And when we speak about sovereignty to a Native American, not always is that understood because there is no word in our native language for sovereignty. That's something that doesn't and can't be conveyed, and it does, and it will 
get lost in interpretation because the idea of sovereignty is, is a little bit um, above us and, it, and when we start to talk about it, we don't know how to explain that to our own people. But because of boarding schools and being shipped off and our parents having to learn English versus um, speaking their own native language through that process, then we have a generation who's learned to speak, read, and understand the English. And with that same thought, we learned how to understand processes. We also began to understand and, and look into what sovereignty meant. So when the five tribes came together, and the object that was before us that was discussed was sovereignty, we had five different interpretations of what sovereignty could mean. Could mean. And that's just it. It was an interpretation on our, on our parts. But what we ended up with was we all can read, write, and understand in English. Okay, my tribe specifically, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe, the land that now is known as Mesa Verde National Park. Well, that was one of the products of the Antiquities Act of 1906. That land belonged to the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. Not a lot of people know that. So that was something used against my people, prescribed and forced to accept. For me, that was really personal when we sat at the table. That knowledge was very personal when members of the Utah delegation, specifically Rob Bishop, would say, now Regina, you know you should not be advocating because the Antiquities Act was a weapon used against your people. Yes, but wherein it does it say that the Native Americans cannot utilize and request the use of the Antiquities Act? It doesn't. It isn't written, nor has it ever been requested by Native Americans themselves to advocate for protection. <clears throat> so we spent one whole day, probably I think that was a 10 hour day, maybe longer, enough time for us to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we were working on a midnight snack. <laughs> but we spent one whole day tearing apart the Antiquities Act. We sat with a lawyer who helped tear it apart for us, actually two, and we sat there understanding and trying to understand. We didn't move on if all five of us did not understand a very traditional method of reaching understanding is consensus. Very time consuming, but very important in our process. To understand what sovereignty means in that discussion, Native Americans, by virtue, even by the Constitution, inherently we possess the right to have government-to-government -government conversations as sovereign nations, nation-to-nation. -nation. 
Not a lot of people understand that. They say, how does that happen? Well, before we were discovered, we were discovered, I didn't know we were lost, but before we were discovered, uh, we were nations. We were already a group of people. And so when all of these policy writings and all the laws started to be created, they didn't, know, they didn't quite know what to do or how to address the Native American groups. And with us being nations, they had to deal with us the same way they would deal with Mexico or Canada or any other country. So we're nations within nations. And sometimes people don't understand that. That affords us the right to have conversations. If we want to, we can demand that from the United States president. It's just that he has a process to go through to request for time and whatnot. But we, we always seem to get hung up in processes. We were very respectful of those processes. We danced through the hoops. We danced to the tune of their drummer. And we got to the end of the line. And the one thing that I do have to say, and I think every one of the partners in this room and outside of this room, whether they were a federal agency, I thank them for coming to the table and allowing for Bears Ears to be the one place where indigenous knowledge meets science. And that's what was so eloquently written in President Obama's proclamation. If you haven't read that, I recommend you go back and read it. You will read some very beautiful words, eloquently written, which brings this important space, this sacred space, into black and white. So that it's going to be forever there. It's not like this, this monument didn't happen. That's the one thing we have to be mindful of. It did happen. We did have a monument. We did celebrate. It was a great moment for all of us. It was greater for us because it showed us that, you know what? I did learn to read and write and speak in English for a reason. It wasn't all in vain. But I tell you what, though. But because of that, now I'm having to circle back around to relearn my language. And that's a big challenge for me. I probably know enough words to get me in trouble, but I'm making that effort. But I'm also making the effort to bring to the, the conversation of many people about what sovereignty means and how we can demonstrate it and how we can live it. As an individual, we're not sovereign. As a group of people, we are. And as a nation, all together, the United States of America, we are sovereign. But we have to understand also those smaller nations within this country, they're also sovereign. Nation to nation. Thank you. Before we kind of wrap this up, and I want to thank each of the panelists, you know, there's a common theme that you listen to each of these individual stories, 
without prompting too much by me, we all talked about the different perspectives that we bring to the table, right? And how individually those are important, collectively they're stronger, you know, and we are relying on our cultural teachings and traditions to carry that message forward. It reminds me of a story from Hopi in which uh, Ed mentioned Chief Lolama, who made a journey back to Washington, D.C. with some of the other uh, leaders of some of the villages at that time. And they made this long, they had never left a reservation before. This was their first time getting on a train in Winslow, Arizona and heading east. And the further east they went, the bigger the towns got, the more outsiders they saw. Until ultimately they reached Washington, D.C., where the president at the time um, took them to where, I think they stopped actually in Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, where uh, the leaders of the Sioux nations were being held prisoner. And they took them to that prison to show them that this is what awaits you if you resist us as the United States government. Eventually they made their way back to Washington, D.C., where they took them around D.C. and paraded in front of them uh, they took them to the, sh the, the, where they fire off the cannons and they marched the army before them and, and shot off their, their artillery. Again, showing these small little Hopi priests that this is what awaits you if you choose to resist. That left an indelible mark upon Chief Lolama when he came home. He totally understood that at some point along the way, we have to continually re-identify ourselves and, and be flexible in who we are. When he came home, he had a little meeting of some of his village chiefs and religious leaders there. And he talked about how the further he went, the more white people he saw, that inevitably there was no opportunity for Hopi to resist them. He took a handful of sand and poured it out and, it says, and kept doing it over and over and said, as many grains of sand as there are in here, this is how many outsiders there are out there. He then took a piece of cotton string that said it represented the good things from Hopi. He took another cotton string and said, this represents the positive things that we can get from the outside culture. Individually, those things are strong. And then he twisted it together. And he said, but when you put them together, it becomes doubly strong and gives us additional, uh, additional affirmation of who we are to use this information to move forward. When I think about how this monument came about and the coalition of tribes, this is what we're doing. We, uh, we do have our cultural differences that we recognize, but we're choosing to take the good things from each of these cultural traditions and our tribal nations and bring them together so that we offer that unified voice to continue to move into the future. Like Regina said, we add that strength of science to help us in our case to move forward. So this is more than just something new for us to be doing. This is taking things that we have always held dear to us, our teachings, our histories, our values and beliefs, and utilizing that in concert with things that we were forced to learn in the outside world and providing uh, a stronger foundation for us to move forward. 
So we do have our lawyers, we do have our scientists, we do have those experts out there that we can turn to to help us make this case. There was a monument, there still will be a monument. So I wanna thank you all, my panelists again, um, and thanks for being a part of this event. interested in hosting your own show on the archaeology podcast network if you're passionate about a topic and can come up with at least 10 episodes right now i'll wait then contact me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com we'll go over your options and what we can do for you that's chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com don't let your passions sit in a file cabinet or on a dusty bookshelf broadcast them to the world with a podcast today back to the show spin your passion into a business of shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout let's hear that one more time the world's best converting checkout shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website across social media and everywhere in between now that's music to your ears any way you spin it you can be a smash hit with shopify start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records I think any of us are like dying, dying to not hear you talk anymore. So if there's anything else you have to say, that was very inspirational. <laughs> anything else, Angelo? I got something else I wanted to follow him up with that. Like I totally agree with that. Like the time of the uh, the Indian expert is over. It's time for expert Indians. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, you know, when we're just trying to figure out uh, the power of coalitions and collaborative work and, you know, flexing our sovereignty muscles, um, you know, that's super effective right now when, you, when you're thinking about just how this coalition worked and how I was working with um, uh, an international repatriation working group, and it was super collaborative. And the best thing that I loved about it was that it was all voluntary. Nobody was getting paid. But we had lawyers, doctors, anthropologists, archaeologists, museum curators, traditional knowledge keepers. And like these people came because they cared. And they got a lot of ancestors back home. You know, it's like, okay, we, we're running up against this barrier. What do we do? Oh, let's ask the Maori folks. They seem to be successful in this thing. What about the First Nations people? They're getting their totem poles back, okay? Well, let's go talk about, you know, the, the Sami in Norway. And like, it was a beautiful thing to witness that we were getting traction as coalitions and collaborative teams of indigenous nations that were doing things that weren't being fulfilled by the law, whether that was the United States or even in the United Nations. And it was finally starting to get into the United Nations getting traction that way. So that was one of the top priorities they've had in the last couple of years. So it's working worldwide. And, you know, I think it's the future. We can't any longer do things alone. So um, I just wanted to follow up on that with you in total agreement because that's how we're, we're starting to move things along is, uh, you know, Western 
Western ideas, science and philosophy, governance, it's, it's all catching up to traditional knowledge now, finally. Um, what I wanted to add to the um, conversation is just that uh, what, I, what I started to speak on before was that it's a very different paradigm, you know, that somebody operates from traditionally. And when you're in the greater culture, a good example is like the way we were taught to shake hands as a kid, that you would never like grab somebody's hand, how disrespectful that would be, you know, to act that way towards somebody. But of course, in, uh, when you step off outside, you know, that's, what you're, that's the way that you're encouraged to be. Um, I feel like we need a very big paradigm shift, you know. Crazy Horse said, one does not sell the earth upon which the people walk, you know. And yet this is the paradigm that we're living in. We're living in a paradigm of land ownership, and yet in my mind, nobody owns this land. You know, this is a sacred land, and it's created by the Creator, and therefore none of us have title to it. We never had title to it. We still don't have title to it. It's His land, and therefore it's worthy of that respect. Um, When we talk about um, presentations, you know, about this sacred landscapes that we live in. You know, we're often talking about the migrations of Hopi and the migrations of Tewa or Tiwa, Toa, Kiris, Zuni. And yet, you know, we in our stories, we never refer to ourselves that way, you know. We weren't the whole tribe, you know, cruising around together like that, you know. These are the migrations of clanships. These are the migrations of individual um, sovereign nations, if you will, you know, and this is the way that they operated, you know, when they came together, you know, they came together in villages, we conglomerated as clanships, you know, not as tribes, you know, as clanships, and we can have cousins of clanships in today, very many different tribes of what today are very many, very many different tribes. I just point that out because it's a paradigm shift, you know, it's a, it's a totally different way of looking at the migration of this landscape. And when we look at that, we're also um, looking at the paradigms which are at work within our own people, you know. Uh, when these tribal governments were imposed upon us, really a lot of it went very much against our traditional leadership. And even today, you know, it usurps many of many times usurps our traditional leaders, and um, you know you have um, situations where Senator Kyle's proposing a water grab with that uh, uh, Navajo Hopi Colorado River Rights Settlement Act of 2012, which was just a, a grab at our wash water. Well. You know, a lot of the leadership was already knew about it when that was proposed. Of course, you know, when the people heard about it, there was an uproar because nobody, nobody, you know, in the grassroots level of of people in their hearts would ever think about giving something away as precious as water. Water is life, you know. So I'm just pointing out that as we move forward into these new paradigms, I think that it's really important that we reach back and remember, remember we're in this paradigm of land ownership, but really in my mind, it's all an illusion, you know? And I think that when we fight for it, you know, 
Yes, we're fighting for it. Yes, we're fighting for monuments, but we're fighting for monuments because we're living in this paradigm where that's necessary, you know. But all in all, you know, this is a sacred landscape because it's the creator's landscape. Thank you. Knowing where we came from generally means that we're seeking to know where we're going to go. And one thing that I have learned very recently, and as currently I work as as the education director for the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose, Colorado. There's a lot of petroglyphs in the area, and I'm very mindful that the Colorado Plateau extends into Colorado. (laughs) <laughs> but one of the things that although I've stated it this is this landscape and through the designation this is where science meets indigenous knowledge but the biggest thing that I've also learned and I've also said this many times before what's written on the walls that's, that's where my guide is that's where each of us know our knowledge of the past. But those are also maps of science. There's petroglyphs that show where the waterways were, where the trails existed. And they're still there. If you take that and you, you, you overlay it, you can you know, try to fix it on, on a certain landscape, you're going to find trails. We were already scientists. We just didn't know it was called scientists. <laughs> we already had documentation. It just wasn't on paper and didn't have black ink. That's why indigenous knowledge wasn't always what the Western civilization And I guess that's one of the reasons their justification that the poor little Indian need to be civilized. Because we didn't do it their way. We were outside of their box. We were doing things. We've always done things. These things always existed for us. It was just in a different manner. It was in a different form. But the one thing that that the writings on the wall tell us, I don't care what language you are, you can look at it and you're going to gain an understanding. It was something that crossed many language barriers. Kind of like sign language, I guess you can say. Things like that, our people were already being mindful of different indigenous people. We lived to try to coexist. We had our own forms of land management. One of the most simple thoughts of land management that our people live by is you only took what you needed. The most simple form that anybody could live by. And we taught that to our little, our, our children, and we still do. Which basically says don't over-harvest, right? In a different way. But a lot of this, a lot of the, the, the ownership of things, that was new to us. But that was taught to us. And this is something that we have learned. And unfortunately, it doesn't serve us well. 
I don't think it serves anybody well because it, it teaches a level of greed. If I own more of something, that puts me at a higher level than my neighbor. We were never taught to be that way. We were always taught to be good, good neighbors. And of course, if my neighbor stayed a little too long in the area there, there was going to be some, there was going to be a squirmish. And the evidence of those squirmishes are still on the land. And if we allow these, these lands to be destroyed through invasive manners and procedures of getting these oil and minerals out of the ground, I'll never be able to see how the Utes and the Zunis got into it back in the day because somebody stayed a little too long. But you know, see, those are stories that would disappear. That's why it's important. That's why the land holds our heritage and stories. How would you feel if somebody destroyed your family's heritage? How would you feel if we went into your backyard of where your family had been for many generations and said, I'm going to explore for oil because I hear you have a really, really great area there. How would you feel if I went into your family's burial sites, battlefields? See, these are questions that we asked the leaders when we went into Washington, D.C., would it be okay if I went to the Battle of Gettysburg and said I want to drill for oil? They didn't like those questions. And I told them, well, I don't like it when you ask these questions of me either. And the landscape you ask, is my backyard, is your backyard? But if we don't make each other feel uncomfortable, we're not doing anything. We're not talking about anything. And I think that this important thing right now is the ability to sit and conversate over things that aren't okay. And I encourage everybody to keep talking. Keep talking. Never stop. And educate yourselves. Watch the many different legislations because the state of Utah is being pretty sly about things. I think if I recall, there's three pieces that have been introduced that we have to keep a mindful watch on. And one, I was very honored to actually go back to DC and testify in opposition. HR 4532, we need to watch that one very closely. And I encourage each and every one of you, continue to keep speaking out. You call them offices. You email them. You let them know how you feel. But keep talking. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. It was really an honor. Uh, Regina, Ed, Angelo, Lyle. Uh, I think... Uh, we can say we saved the best for last, right? <laughs> so thanks so much for joining us today.
listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.